of the AUENV233 Dirt on Soils podcast. Today we're going to be discussing slides 48 through 73 of the week 7 Soil Organisms lecture. For this course topic, our learning outcomes are to understand the different categories of organisms found in the soil, be able to provide examples of those organisms, and to really understand the role and functions that these organisms play in relation to soil ecosystems. Our discussion today is going to center around the remainder of our microfauna and microflora. We begin with fungi. Fungi represent their own kingdom and play a huge role in the soil ecosystem. Most fungi grow in a long filamentous structure known as a hypha. Plural of this is hyphae. And in most fungi groups, this represents the main form of vegetative growth. And on slide 48, you can see a picture of fungal hyphae on the leaf of a black maple. Collectively, once you add up a number of hyphae, then you can have a network called a mycelium. Of course, we shouldn't forget that not all fungi grow as filamental structures, um, and some are actually single-celled organisms, and we'd be very familiar with these as our yeasts that use to make beer and bread. More common, of course, are the mushrooms, and the mushrooms that we are so familiar with in terms of eating them or seeing them out in nature actually only represent the fruiting body of the fungus structure, and that hyphae and mycelium is all below ground. Within the fungi, there are several different groups with different morphology and reproductive strategy. Specifically, there are two large divisions, the Ascomycetes and the Basidiomycetes. Examples of the Ascomycetes groups are morels, truffles, along with several deleterious or poisonous fungi. Within the Basidiomycetes are more traditional mushrooms, such as the agaricus, which is pictured on slide 49. The Basidiomycetes fungi group largely contains many of the mycorrhizal fungi, and these are important because of their function as vigorous wood decomposers. They are able to break down both cellulose, lignin, along with other complex compounds. So obviously these are a major pathway of breaking down organic matter to incorporate into soil. And slide 50 is a reminder that we probably should not be picking mushrooms in the wild unless we know exactly what we're doing. This is an example of a poster that's been put up in BC where death cat mushrooms are growing, especially amongst the urban forest where we have imported many types of trees. When you import these trees, you're also importing some of the fungi within their root systems. And these fungi are actually extremely poisonous and look like mushrooms that you can eat. Not only are fungi important for breaking down organic matter, fungi can actually enhance soil aggregate formation by physically binding particles of soil together. They actually secrete a mucilage through the hyphae that acts like a glue that binds together sand, clay, and silt particles. Approximately 90% of all vascular land plants live in some association with mycorrhizal fungi. These are symbiotic relationships that form between fungi and plants. We're going to explain a little bit more about them and what role they play in the soil ecosystem. The basis of the relationship is to understand that fungi are heterotrophic organisms and must absorb their food whereas plants are autotrophic and produce their food. So what we see is a mutualistic relationship where both parties benefit. There are two major types of mycorrhizal fungi. One is ectomycorrhizae, only penetrates between plant cells, whereas an endomycorrhizae penetrates host cells. It's important to remember that both forms facilitate nutrient uptake for the plant in exchange for carbon and sugars from that plant. Slides 53 to 55 give more details on the ectomycorrhiza. 
The important defining feature here is that the fungal hyphae do not enter into the cells, rather they create a net on the outside of root cells. They do extend their hyphae several meters from the root, so in combination, the roots and hyphae create a network throughout the soil, and the hyphae provide both nitrogen and phosphorus in organic and inorganic forms. So this allows the tree and the plants to reach many more parts of the soil. Slides 56 to 58 provide more details about endomycorrhizae. These are also known as vesicular arbuscular mycorrhizae, or VAM for short. These are named because of arbuscules, which are expanded fungal hyphae inside of plant cells. They generally only last about four to 10 days, and then plant cells actually consume. Similar to ectomycorrhiza, endomycorrhiza, or VAM, facilitate nutrient uptake in exchange for carbon from the plant. The biggest difference is that the hyphae network for VAM extends only several centimeters into surrounding soil. Slide 58 shows an excellent picture of an arbuscle inside of a plant cell. So what impact does having a mycorrhizal network have on a given plant? Slide 59 shows a comparison between two orange seedlings, one with a mycorrhizal treatment and one with a non-mycorrhizal treatment. Here, the y-axis represents yield, or grams of dry weight of plant. The x-axis shows increasing phosphorus fertilizer from left to right. By looking at this graph, we can answer the two questions. The first, does phosphorus addition matter to mycorrhizal plants? From the graphic, it seems like it doesn't really have a difference because mycorrhiza act to increase the uptake of phosphorus to these plants. And so there's actually a slight increase at the start, but really it's a, almost a flat line. The second question is, you can, can you overcome a phosphorus deficiency without mycorrhiza? And you can, but you have to add a significant amount of fertilizer. And this example reveals the importance of mycorrhizal networks to successful seedling establishment and growth. Many healthy soils contain a near ubiquitous distribution of native mycorrhizal fungi. However, in certain cases, it might be important to inoculate your soil with mycorrhiza. And in many cases, you can treat new seedlings with mycorrhiza as an addition or what it's called an inoculant. Other major functions of mycorrhiza are nutrient uptake besides phosphorus, so nitrogen, some metals which are required in small concentrations and sulfur, increases drought resistance for plants, provides some protection from pathogens, and contributions to uptake are largely through increased soil volume explored by the plant. If we think about the extension to a root network with these hyphae networks, we are touching a lot more soil and a lot more potential to collect resources from that soil. Of course, we need to recognize that there is a cost to the plant as well, in that it's providing carbon to the fungi. In slide 61, what we can see is a table that compares different fungus and hosts and looks at how much carbon is allocated to the symbiote versus carbon uptake in the plant. And what we can see in most cases is that the carbon allocation to the symbiote is between 5 and 14%. And in most cases, the increased carbon uptake is higher than that. However, there's one example that was studied, the Glomus vasculatum fungus, in association with a host sorghum, where carbon uptake was negative 21. This means that overall the sorghum was losing carbon, 
and that carbon allocation of the symbiote was only four. So in this case, it probably wasn't a very beneficial relationship. Another potential function of these large mycorrhizal networks among trees and within forests is the potential of communication amongst different trees in terms of signals of distress through their roots and across fungi networks. This became very popular with um, a New York Times bestseller called The Hidden Life of Trees that many of us may have heard of by Peter Volleben, and actually some research at UBC from Dr. Suzanne Simard, who has a very excellent TED talk that I can recommend, investigates this potential a lot more. We're now moving into the microflora on slide 64 and discussing soil algae. Algae can be single and multicellular, range from 2 to 20 micrometers. They're autotrophs, so they produce their own food through photosynthesis. If light is present, algae will usually grow on any soil. They're usually there in dormant form until conditions are right. And algae, similar to fungi, can have a strong influence on soil aggregation. The next important organism to speak about are the lichens. And lichens actually represent a symbiotic association between our last two organisms, fungus and algae. In lichens, the fungal symbiote is often an ascomyceti, and it provides enhanced nutrient uptake, regulates water, and the light environment. The algae is usually a green algae, and it provides energy and maybe some nitrogen. Lichens are really essential for primary succession and break down these initial soil parent materials and kickstart soil formation. Finally, we move into our soil prokaryotes. These are our bacteria and the most numerous organisms in the soil. One gram of soil might contain 100 million bacterial cells. And bacterial cells are really interesting. These prokaryotes, they rapidly respond to changes in the soil environment. So they are R-selected, which means that they have an emphasis on growth, not competition when food is abundant, whereas some of our K-selected species are more focused on competition and limiting numbers when food is present. And these shapes are defining as to which species we're looking at. In soil, rod shapes seem to dominate over circular or spiral-shaped bacteria. So although those are the smallest members of the soil ecosystem, prokaryotes participate in all biogeochemical cycles. They are especially important in oxidation and reduction of chemicals in the soil. So in terms of ammonium and nitrification, we also see oxidation of sulfur, iron, and manganese in the soil. Within the prokaryotes, archaea are groups that can actually be re applied to remediate soils. And in some cases, archaea are able to break down petroleum products. So when we think about soil remediation processes, prokaryotes can play a key role in this. Of course, prokaryotes also act as a source of food for other microorganisms. They form the basis of that food pyramid and they can also create habitat through excretions and biofilms. Slide 71 provides subdivisions of these bacterial groups based on their reactions, energy requirements, and other properties. The major way you can break down bacterial groups are based on how they obtain carbon and energy. So you have photoautotrophs, which use energy from sunlight and carbon from carbon dioxide, chemoautotrophs, which use energy from oxidation of inorganic substances, so the nitrogen, iron, or sulfurs in the soil, and the heterotrophs, which use energy and carbon from breaking down organic compounds. You could also make divisions within bacteria based on their oxygen requirements. So some bacteria are considered aerobic, and they need free gaseous oxygen, or anaerobic, where they can use electron acceptors other than oxygen, 
so they don't require free oxygen. You can also have facultative anaerobes, which can switch back and forth between being aerobic or anaerobic, depending if there's presence or absence of oxygen. Finally, you can have dinitrogen fixers based on the presence or absence of symbiotic relationships. So symbiotic nitrogen fixers are associated with a host plant, and both the host and bacteria benefit from these bacteria fixing nitrogen, and it fixes it directly from the atmosphere. Or we can have non-symbiotic nitrogen fixers. These exist as free bacteria in the soil without a host, but they do fix nitrogen. And with a couple of concluding thoughts, soil organisms have numerous beneficial effects on plant communities. And it's important to remember soil management practices and how they can have an impact on diversity and abundance of soil organisms. Table 11.8 on slide 73 shows a number of practices that can actually act to decrease biodiversity and populations in the soil, whereas other practices can act to increase biodiversity and populations. And the figure on slide 73 shows an example of applying an insecticide, which eliminates predatory mites versus retaining them and the downstream effects of that, thinking about this whole web of interactions that exists within the soil ecosystem. That concludes the soil organisms topic. Next up, we're gonna be discussing soil carbon uh, and the implications of climate change on various soils, especially permafrost soils. I'd like to point out uh, a number of ways you can be in touch with me uh, via email, of course, but also there's an e-class forum I'm also hosting virtual office hours via Zoom. You can find the link on eClass, and those office hours take place between 8.30 and 9.30 Mondays and Fridays.